This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we just pray that as we continue to go through uh, the book of um, uh, Acts, that you help us to understand it better and to be able to apply it to our lives. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, when I was in school, when I was young, I was in the Scouts. Anybody here in the Scouts? Oh, one only. Only George and me. (laughs) Oh, two people. Okay, so, unfortunately, only two people can answer this question. What is the motto of the Scouts? Be prepared. That's right. Be prepared. Be prepared. Now, I think it's very important to be prepared. Uh, I remember going to a sermon and listening to a pastor telling of how he went on a family holiday when he went to Sabah to Kota Kinabalu. And they decided to climb Mount Kinabalu. And he wasn't prepared. He turned up in his slippers. So the guides and everybody shook their heads because he was not prepared. He was not prepared to climb the mountain. I think the lesson for us today as we look at today's passage is that being a Christian is tough. It is difficult, there are challenges, and if you're not prepared, you can actually lose Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your substitute, as your salvation. So how are we to be prepared for the Christian life? What are the things that we need to look out for? Well, I think today's passage helps us in being prepared. So in verse 23, we're continuing on the missionary journey, the third missionary journey of Paul. And it says there in verse 23, at that time, there arose a great dispute disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the grassmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and hid led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So the passage begins uh, where we left off last week, which is Paul was in Ephesus. So you've got to click, I think. Do you click? I think there's a circle there. Yeah, so in Ephesus. And if you remember last week, he'd done a great deal of ministry there. He'd been there for about uh, two years, two and a half years, three years. And last week we saw that Ephesus was the center of black magic superstition, of idolatry. But as many, many Christians became, uh, you know, became Christians from that city, they transformed their life. So last week we saw that what they did was they, their past life, they used to have all these magic scrolls. Right? Remember, it's a city of magic. So these magic scrolls, they sort of bought them and they sort of used it as blessing and as power uh, and, and, you know, prestige and things like that. But after they became Christians, they burned their magic scrolls. Now, as we look at this section in verse 23 onwards, it wasn't just the writers or the sellers of the magic scrolls who were impacted by the growth of Christianity, but it was also these people called the silversmiths. Now, silversmiths, not, not a sun, sunrise industry today, uh, next slide, are these people who like basically make uh, things out of silver, jewelry, cups, plates. But obviously, in this city of Ephesus, the big money maker for the silversmiths were making these little shrines for the goddess Artemis. Now, in the city of Ephesus, 
they had a ancient world UNESCO wonder of the world, which was the temple of Ephesus. Like it was much bigger, much grander, much better than our botanic gardens. Okay, it was like one of the ancient wonders. It was like the Great Wall of China today. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And uh, if you see these pictures, next slide, you can actually see in modern day. Oh, this is the shrine thing. Next one. You can actually see how grand it was. You can't actually see the thing now has been uh, sacked and the temple is gone. But it would have been a really amazing place, right? It's uh, four times the size of the Pantheon in Athens. So with many people becoming Christian, what was a very profitable, very lucrative business for these silversmiths? Maybe they were selling it to the local people in Ephesus. Maybe they were selling it by their Amazon of the day to the people of the region. Maybe the tourists were coming in, they are buying all these little shrines for Artemis. But what was once profitable was now becoming a money-losing proposition. What was once very profitable and lucrative was becoming very bleak, and possibly people were going to bankruptcy. But the problem was, nobody really cares, right? I mean, everybody else has to worry about their own living, putting bread on their own table. They don't really care about the silversmiths and their profit, uh, you know, maybe except the people selling silver to them and the carpenters on which the shrines are built on. So the argument that the silversmiths use in the city of Ephesus was not profit, but they appeal to the pride and the patriotism of the Ephesian people. So in verse 27, this was the PR campaign that they used. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also, also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. See, the problem was profit. But the way that it was actually argued was pride, patriotism. The great temple of the great goddess who is known worldwide will be robbed and shamed and humiliated, disgraced and dishonored. And it wouldn't just be affecting Artemis, but it will affect Ephesus, the pride of Ephesus. And that's why, as a result of this PR campaign, in verse 28, when they heard of it, when the crowds of people in Ephesus heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, they appeal to the pride and the patriotism of the people. You know, like if you're slandering Artemis, then you affect the temple, you affect the glory of the temple, you affect the pride of Ephesus. You know, I mean, obviously we don't quite understand. Like, you know, we won't be running around saying, great is the mer line of Singapore. Great is the mer line of Singapore, right? I mean, what's the big deal to us, right? But it, 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 was, it touched a nerve, right, in Ephesus. So I remember watching um, this program on Channel News Asia. Uh, the next slide. It's called Kaching. And uh, it was on Channel News Asia, and it was about the gambling industry in Australia. I just happened to watch it one day. Uh, just, I don't know, I have free time and I watched it on the, what's that thing that you can download stuff from Channel News Asia? Toggle, that's right, I watched it on Toggle. And, uh, and they were saying that actually in, in Australia, half a million Australians are problem gamblers, right? And 
Apparently, Australians spend $19 billion a year on gambling. And I didn't know this, but apparently the people who lose the most money in the world through gambling are the Australians. And the main culprit is these gaming machines, which you go to the pubs and the the clubs, right? Which the Australians call pokies, pokie machines. So a few years ago, the government tried to restrict the machine. You know, they don't, they don't want so many machines and they don't want the machines to uh, take so much money from the people. So obviously the gambling machine, were, the industry will be very worried, right? Because their profits will be affected. So the gambling industry started their own PR campaign, but they didn't argue about profit, right? But they argued about patriotism. So what they said was, it is un-Australian for you to take away our right to gamble. Because, you know, playing pokies is the part, the way of the Australian life. You know, it's part of the Australian way of life. How can you deny me my Australian way of life? And that's exactly what was happening here in Ephesus, right? They were saying that Christianity was going against the Ephesian way of life. You're taking away our temple. You're taking away our goddess. You're attacking the pride of the city. But thankfully, as we see in the narrative, uh, they had a very wise, powerful civil servant, like a chief justice. So you see there that the chief justice uh, actually steps in after they've been shouting for about two hours right, in the assembly. In verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd. So the city clerk was empowered by the Roman authorities as the most powerful person of his day. He was like, the chief justice and the police commissioner rolled into one. And the first thing he said was, he said, look, the city of Ephesus is still the guardian of the great temple of uh, Artemis and her image, her honor, her respect, her reputation for the temple Artemis and the city are still renowned. Right? There's no threat. This is just all fake news. Secondly, you've brought these men here but they have neither robbed the temple nor blasphemed our goddess. Right? So if you really have a problem with what they're doing, then you can go to the courts, the civil courts, and charge them personally. Or if they committed a criminal crime, you can go to the police and report them, and they will be jailed. But if not, then you should just calm down and go back home. And everybody went back home. Now, as we look at this passage, the reality of being a Christian in life is that these sort of things will happen. As Christianity spreads, as Christianity is embraced by more people, then you must be prepared. You must be prepared because people may irrationally, based on the mood of the day for whatever reason, turn against Christianity and violently and unreasonably oppose you and single you out for unfair criticism or unfair hate. And I think that in the world that we live in, if we're not prepared for this sort of irrational, uh, unreasonable persecution, then we, we're not prepared for the real world, because that's what happens in the real world. So in the third service last week, I'm, I'm going to steal an illustration from uh, Andrew Wong. He, um, he was saying that uh, in Australia, uh, over the last week, in Queensland, Right, the next slide. Oh, what happened to the slide? Ah, this one. This, she's the Queensland uh, Australian uh, Education Minister. 
they actually put out a, a directive to the principals of the schools, which, uh, the next slide, which directed that children, right, from primary school all the way to secondary school, were not allowed to talk about Jesus in the schoolyard. You can't give out Christmas cards, you can't give out beads or something. I don't know what they do in Australia, but there's some evangelistic bead or something, right? And uh, it was uh, such a, a restrictive thing that uh, even the newspapers picked up on it because the principles were meant to act if your six-year-old Johnny told someone else about Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at this, you think, oh, this is very unreasonable or very unfair because why is it only Christianity is singled out? What about the other religions? Uh, what about if I'm an atheist and I try to convert, convert you to being an atheist? Is that not wrong too? But that's the reality of the world we live in, right? There might be irrational, unreasonable things that happen against Christian opposition. But we must see that this is something that has been happening since the beginning of Christianity. And this is the way that society can react and not become despondent or despairing. Now, Paul continues on his missionary journey. And uh, he goes from Ephesus uh, down there. I think he has to click, I think. And he goes up to Troas, up in the north. Now in Troas, uh, we are told about something very significant. This is the first picture of a Christian church service. Okay, I mean, in the past, we sort of get snippets about people evangelizing things, but this is the first time we actually see a Christian service. So let's look at verse 7 of chapter 20. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated up in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep because Paul talked on and on and on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now here we see a great miracle done by Paul and a miracle that was only comparable to what Jesus had done. But I think it also gives us many details about what this church service involved. So the first thing we noticed was they met on the first day of the week. Now, because Luke and Acts were written to Gentile audiences, the first day of the week was not according to a Jewish calendar, but to a Roman calendar. So for the Gentiles, the first day of the week was Sunday. Right? That's one of the reasons why, in a sense, we come together on a Sunday. Right? We don't come together on a Saturday, like the Jews. We don't come together on a Friday, like the Muslims. We come together on a Sunday because first day of the week, according to Roman calendar, Sunday. The second thing was, we noticed that they came together to break bread. Breaking bread literally was the idea of eating a meal together, a family meal. Right? So in Luke chapter 24, right, Jesus, when he resurrected, came to the table with them, he broke bread. Oh, sorry, next slide. Well, uh, yeah, okay. okay. Jesus came with his disciples, he 
took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Then they ate when their eyes were opened. They recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Okay, in Acts chapter 22, verse 42, it says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So you might sort of think that breaking bread was they just came together, broke bread, and then they had dinner, and that was it. But actually, within the context of the Bible, breaking bread also is the idea of having Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. So when we talk about breaking bread, usually it's the context in which we have a meal together, and then within the meal, you remember the death of Jesus Christ through the Holy Communion. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, this is what it says. It says the same thing about breaking bread. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. It's not the cup of thanksgiving from which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord and what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that means that within their church services, the first thing that they did when they came together was they ate together and remembered the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. They would explain that Jesus was a substitute for them on the cross. Jesus died for their sins. Jesus died so that they could be saved. And that's why if you look at this passage, they did it two times, right? They, they broke bread at the beginning and they broke bread at midnight. Not because they were really hungry, you know, so they had dinner and supper. But I think as a visual reminder of what they came together for, for the death of Jesus Christ. The third thing they did on that Sunday was they had a sermon. A long, long sermon, right? So if you think, I don't think I preach very long, but if you do think I preach very long, Paul preached like 10 times longer than me. But anyway, the Consolation is if you do fall asleep during the sermon, you should feel, you should be, feel cons, you know, consoled by this passage because you can see even 2,000 years ago, people were falling asleep during the sermon as well, right? And this time, um, someone was sleeping because, you know, in those days they didn't have electricity, so they had oil lamps and the window was open, so you need fresh air because the oil lamps are smelly, right? Imagine having like a sermon where people are having barbecues, right? So you sit by the window, get fresh air. And this guy fell asleep, the boy, and he fell down three stories, and he died. And that's why we don't allow people to sit next to the window during sermons, right? Paul runs down, he stops preaching, and uh, he picks up the boy, and, and the boy lives again. And I think he's not saying, oh, the boy's actually alive. He actually is saying he lives again. That's why the people were greatly comforted. 
But Paul doesn't start a healing service after he heals or resurrects the boy. He goes back up. They have the Lord's Supper again. He preaches from midnight to daybreak. Another six hours. Now here are people who really hunger for God's word. I mean... I mean, that's a really long time. I don't know how comfortable the chairs have to be, but you would really have to concentrate to have such a long sermon. But the people did. Now, obviously, this is a very descriptive passage. It doesn't tell you what to do or not what to do. There's no instructions here. Please do this. But you can't miss the structure of the early church was all about instruction and teaching, right? There was visible instruction, you, you eat the bread, you drink the wine, you see and participate in the death of Jesus Christ for you. You hear the sermon for like 10 hours, right? I mean, not, not that they'll do this every week, but obviously Paul coming through is special, but you hear uh, the sermon about the way of God. Now, this is so important for us to see because this is the heart of what church is. The heart of church is seeing the death of Jesus Christ and its meaning, hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the structure, the, the framework of what a church service is about. Now, Paul then continues on his journey. And the next slide, he goes from uh, Troas down to Miletus. So Troas is up the north and he comes down to Miletus. Uh, next slide. Uh, so you can see that, you know, he comes down this way. But when he comes to Miletus, uh, next slide, he asks the elders of Ephesus to meet him here in Miletus. Uh, Paul is, is, is uh, on a hurry. He wants to go somewhere else. So it's almost like, you know, he's stopping through transit at the airport and he calls people to meet him there for a quick meeting. And here he needs to speak to the elders of Ephesus because he's been there three years, church is growing, he's left behind a group of people to look after it, and he needs to tell them or remind them what they need to do because he's not coming back again. He's just not coming back this way. He knows he's not coming back this way. And we already have the pattern of the church, right, which was Lord's Supper and Sermon, teaching and instruction, but here we see the content that fills up the structure. You know, we have the structure, but what is filling it up? What is the content of Paul's ministry? What is the content of Paul's preaching? So in verse 17, in chapter 20, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jewish, my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life 
worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And again in verse 33, 35, sorry, verse 33, 32, he says, Now I commit to you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, if you look at this passage, what is the content of Paul's ministry? He's saying, you know what I've been doing among you? You know what I've been doing among you? What has he been doing among them? He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been declaring. He's been testifying. He's been proclaiming. He's been committing things to them. These are all teaching words. These are all instruction words. Because that is the fundamental role that Paul sees him fulfilling. And this is what he feels that the church needs. And I think that's very important because when we have the structure of the Lord's Supper and the sermon, what, what is within that time? What is the content of it? The content of it is preaching, teaching, proclaiming, testifying, committing, and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the great problems is that in the world that we live in, uh, churches are moving further and further away from the very verb actions that Paul talks about that's, that should be the center of the church. So in many churches, the, the, the time that of the sermon is getting less and less and less. Uh, it was really interesting because when I was in England, I was speaking to a Christian friend of mine, and I said, you know, why is the church uh, in the way that it is in England? You know, why is it there are people in churches who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why is it uh, the churches are not growing? Why is it people don't seem to take the Bible seriously? So this uh, Christian friend of mine said that you know, it's because people become ministers or pastors in England, but they don't preach. And I said, well, why did, what do they become ministers for? And he said, well, you know, some people are well-meaning and they want to help people. So they become pastors and they see their role as social workers in a community or counsellors, or community aid workers. Uh, this is exactly what he said. But the thing is, the role of the pastor, the role of the leaders within the church, is not as a counsellor, or social community worker, or community aid worker, but is to preach, and to teach, and to testify, and proclaim, and commit, and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing we notice is, um, next slide, uh, next one, is what exactly did Paul preach and teach and proclaim and testify? Now, you'll notice that there's a whole range of different things that he says, right? He does, doesn't keep saying, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He described it in so many different ways. He said that, right at the very beginning, he declared or he preached anything that was helpful to you he taught that people must turn to God in repentance. He taught that people must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel of God's grace. He proclaimed the whole will of God. He committed to them God and the word of His grace. Now you notice here that this is the whole will of God. 
you know, part of the problem is that we sometimes preach an unbalanced gospel. So you have some churches out there who just preach about God's grace, God's grace, God's grace all the time. And you don't have to worry about changing your life, no repentance, no confession, sins, just all grace and grace and grace. And then you've got some other people who are just preaching, you, got, you need to do better things, you need to be better, you need to be better. I remember Brian Chappell was saying when he first became a pastor, his sermon was very simple. It's just, it's good to be good, so be good. It's bad to be bad, so don't be bad. Okay, let's have the benediction. But that's not the whole will of God. That's not the, what Paul preached. Paul preached grace and repentance together. He preached the whole will of God. He didn't preach just be good or be saved by grace alone. He say, he said that he brought the whole will of God together and he preached it and committed to them. That they were saved by grace, not because they were good people or by their good works, but because God was generous to them. That they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he demanded that they repent, they confess their sins and they changed. Now, he keeps telling, if you, uh, I don't want to keep repeating this thing, but if you go through, he keeps using this word, know, right? K-N-O-W. You know I did this, you know I did this, you know I did this, you know I did this. And because they know of his ministry, they know of the content of his preaching, he just asked them to do two things. Actually, it's the same thing, but there's only two instru- two commands, but saying the same thing, right? The command is to the elders in verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that when I leave, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So the two instructions are, keep watch, be on your guard. Actually, it's only really one instruction because they're kind of like the same idea, right? Keeping watch and being on guard, kind of like the same thing, right? Keep watch, be on your guard for yourself for the church elders, the leaders. Because if they have the wrong content, if they have the wrong pattern of ministry, if they have the wrong understanding and application of the gospel, then they can't teach other people. They are lost themselves. If you're blind, how do you lead other people? But more than that, they are to keep watch over the flock. They are to guard the flock. And the church made up of people, brothers and sisters in Christ, are infinitely valuable because they are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice what it says there. It says that the flock is actually bought by the blood of God. Right? This is the divinity of Jesus Christ, the God Himself, died for you. Each of us, individually and corporately, are valuable because Jesus Christ, who is God, died for us and shed His blood. Therefore, 
he tells the elders, because the church is so infinitely valuable, then the role that they must have is to shepherd them, to guard them, to keep watch over them. Now, that would be a very straightforward concept in those days because in an agricultural agrarian society, everybody knows what the shepherd does. I mean, apart from feeding the sheep, what is the number one KPI of the shepherd? Don't let the sheep die, right? I mean, come on, that must be the most basic thing, right? I mean, you have 100 sheep, you come back, there are only 90. Obviously, you're failing some way, right? Okay? I mean, that must be the, that's the only thing you have to do. That's like the main thing. It's like, what else can you be doing? You make sure the sheep don't die. Now, for the elders, he says, so you have to keep watch and guard the sheep. But it's harder than being a normal shepherd because, you know, when you're a normal shepherd, you can see the wolves. But Paul, the apostle, tells the elders of Ephesus that it's not so simple being the shepherd of God's flock because the wolves, they come from the outside, but the wolves also come from the inside. That's what he says, even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So the wolves will come out from even within the congregation to draw people away from Jesus Christ to themselves. Now, that means that the shepherds must be very alert, must be very watchful. Again, the message of the Bible seems to be lost and easily lost among us, right? Because in the culture of today, what churches want are not really shepherds, but shopkeepers. Okay, so I, know, I read this book where it says, you know, instead of being shepherds of God's flock, many pastors today are just shopkeepers. You know what shopkeepers are? Uh, well, the role of the shopkeeper, the KPI of the shopkeeper is to, to grow numbers, right? So, I'm a shopkeeper, I want more customers to come into my shop, I want more revenue, and I want my shop to grow bigger. And that's what people want of their pastors nowadays. They want them to grow, have more customers come into the church, get more revenue, grow the, the building. And pastors are hired and fired, not for being shepherds, but for being shopkeepers. The problem is that if you choose your pastors because you want them to be shopkeepers, then ultimately what happens is that the great reality which Paul warns about is that the wolves come in from the outside, the wolves come in from the inside. And you might have a bigger church, but the problem is they're no longer Christians. Uh, the, the, the sheep are all been decimated and eaten up by the wolves. And when Jesus comes on the last day, there's no one there in that church who's going to be saved. So I think it's very important for us this lesson. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because, you know, I'm not one of the leaders of the church. I'm not even a Bible study leader. So that's somebody else's problem, right? But in the same way, I think the lesson for us as we look at this passage is that as Christians, we also forget that we are sheep bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we think of ourselves as consumers. And once you start thinking of yourself, as a consumer, rather than a sheep that needs to keep holding on to Jesus and following Jesus, and you start thinking as a consumer, then again, the great risk is that you will lose your salvation 
you lose Jesus as your substitute and you will die to sin. So I remember um, I saw this cartoon which was really interesting. Uh, next one. Right. About how uh, the congregation becomes consumers. Right. So actually it's quite interesting because when you look at all the signs that the people are holding up, it's actually very enlightening. Right. So there's a guy at the front there saying, remember how much money I give each week. Okay. And then there's a lady saying, make sure there are enough programs for my kids. Okay, then the guy sitting in the middle, tell me again how much God wants to bless me. Uh, please refer to sin as bad choices. Don't mention hell. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, then there's a the guy at the back with the dollar signs in his eyes, right? Tell me how to get rich. Then the other guy tickle my ears. Uh, and then this lady says, um, if you don't do things my way, then this guy says, what can Jesus do for me? And there's a the guy at the back saying, be refreshing. And then only good news and no cross. Well, that's what happens, right, if you're a consumer. You just basically want to hear only good things. But the problem is, it's foolish, right? It's foolish because if we are sheep and the wolves can actually come to take us away, then the reality is you are actually putting yourself at great risk as a consumer. So I was watching this uh, old movie on uh, Netflix a few nights ago called American Sniper. I've seen it many times, right? Actually, I read the book, so it's... The book's better. But anyway, in the book um, and the movie, the father tells the son, right? He says, you know, actually there are three, three types of people in this world. Have you, if you've seen the movie, you can remember this part, right? Okay. So anyway, I will only refer to the sheep. Anyway, he says that part of the problem of being a sheep is that they actually believe that there are no wolves. That's part of the problem of being a sheep, right? Or some sheep anyway. They actually, the sheep actually believe there is no wolves. That is the problem that we can have as, as Christians. We actually foolishly think that there are no wolves. But the Bible actually tells us that there are wolves. And we actually need to be aware and be prepared for the wolves because if we don't, then we lose our salvation. So the last, I guess, concluding application I want to share with you is uh, recently some people have been sharing with me about how some of the prosperity gospel churches have been teaching that you should take the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, as often as possible, and even do it yourself at home, because the Lord's Supper, if you do it regularly, will bless you and heal you, and make you blessed by God. Now, if you're a consumer, that is great news, right? Because that's exactly what you're looking for, that's exactly what you want in life. Who doesn't want blessing? Who doesn't want prosperity? Who doesn't want healing, right? But actually, that is thinking of the gospel as a consumer. Because as we've seen here, the Lord's Supper is a visible representation of the death of Jesus, what he means as your substitute to die for you on the cross. But actually thinking the Lord's Supper has some magical property, you're actually going back to the magical scrolls of Ephesus. You're just treating the Lord's Supper in some superstitious manner. But that is the end result of being a consumer, and that's where the wolves get you, right? Because you have moved on from the death of Jesus Christ to being your substitute for dying for your sins, to now thinking that the Lord's Supper is all about your healing and your blessing and prosperity. Well, to me, that just shows the wolves have already come into the church. If you believe in that, then you're already taken away by the wolf. So as we come to today's passage, 
we need to be prepared. Right? Be prepared for, I guess, unreasonable suffering and opposition in this world. But also, to be prepared for the wolves that come in and try to steal us away from our allegiance to Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may take to heart uh, the lessons that we learned from history uh, in uh, Paul, and Ephesus, and Troas, and Miletus. Uh, help us to see that what Paul experienced in Ephesus and uh, the Christians there and the riot that they experienced uh, is something that will keep repeating in history over and over again where people will be unreasonable, irrational, and yet even perhaps even violent and single out Christians for opposition. But we must not despair or become disconsolate and give up, but to see that this is part of the world that we live in and keep persevering. We pray also that we may learn from the structure of the early church and Paul's ministry. At the heart of our time together is one of teaching and instruction through the Lord's Supper, to the Holy Communion, through sermons. And we pray that we will be prepared uh, to watch out for wolves, not just outside of God's people, but even arising from within God's people, so that these wolves will not steal us away and uh, devour us, and so that we will lose our souls and go to hell, but rather that we will continue to always Hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ, thankfulness in your grace towards us, and also to continue to repent and do whatever we must do uh, now that we are your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.